Welcome to the Post-Brexit Europe podcast. This is a product of the Bridge Network, recorded at the DCU Brexit Institute. My name is Ian Cooper. This episode is an interview with John Eric Fossum, who is a leading thinker on differentiation in Europe. He is professor at ARENA, Center for European Studies at the University of Oslo. He is also the coordinator of a large-scale Horizon 2020 research project called EU3D, Differentiation, Dominance, Democracy. And in the interview, he explains what that means. He is also the co-author of a recent book called Squaring the Circle on Brexit, Could the Norway Model Work? Uh, Fossum is from Norway, a country which is outside the EU, but very closely associated with it. In the interview, we discuss whether Norway provides a model for the post-Brexit UK in its relationship with the EU. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with John Eric Fossum. I wanted to ask John Eric first about a, a very large uh, uh, research project that he is the director of. Or, or are you the scientific director? Coordinator. Scientific coordinator. And also I wanted to ask him about the Norway model as, as a possible post-Brexit future. But first, let's talk about the EU3D. Can you uh, give a brief description of what uh, that project is? Yes, thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure to be here and um, to uh, participate in the opening of this important project. Uh, the EU3D is um, it, it's an abbreviation for... Um, democracy, differentiation, and dominance in the European Union. And the idea behind the project is that Europe has become more differentiated. And at the same time, that the changes brought on by the crisis especially have exacerbated some elements that we can label under the heading of dominance, which means more arbitrary rule um, and informality and so forth, things that are not subject uh, to proper democratic control. Uh, this is not necessarily deliberate, but it is an, uh, an effect of different types of, of developments. So the, the first purpose of the uh, project is to get a sense of the extent to which we have seen these forms of pathological, pathological forms of differentiation, so to speak, uh, emanating after the, uh, or marking the European Union after the crisis. In addition, we want to see to what extent there are democratic countervailing forces, um, developments that can kind of bounce back and put the union back on a more democratic track again, and what that means in terms of differentiation. So the overarching objective of the project is to develop, so to speak, a theory of that allows us to sort out those forms of differentiation that are conducive to democracy and those that are associated with dominance. And let me explain that part of the rationale for this is because differentiation is something that is intrinsic to modern states. All states are differentiated and democracy requires forms of differentiation in order to function in the first place. Or um, you need uh, different forms of expertise and, and to organize in these in different ministries, for instance, or, or agencies, or in order to get uh, access to the proper expertise and knowledge that, that democracy requires to do to make good decisions. You also need differentiation to prevent too much of amalgamation of power in uh, one set of hands 
for instance, in the executive. That's why we have um, courts, the judiciary, independent, and we also have legislatures to put a check on the executive. So these are elements of differentiation in modern societies that are necessary to sustain democracy. However, there are also developments that we have seen with the European Union, for instance, the turn towards the European Council method, um, many more decisions being made under the heading of the European Council that is not really accountable to anyone. Sometimes uh, tr um, provisions have been made in international by means of international treaties. And the question is, how exactly do these uh, relate to European legal provisions and so forth? So these, these are some of the developments that we need to examine. And we also need to examine the um, discussions about the core Europe and, and, um, uh, and other types of, of possibilities, Europe à la carte and so forth. These, these are also uh, possible, these are forms of differentiation in the EU that can be problematic, but we need to find out exactly what these are about. So I've known your work for a long time and uh, these three and so when I see three D's, I thought the third D might be deliberation or something like that. I'm not surprised to see democracy in there and I'm not surprised to see differentiation in there. But the one that jumps out and one that seems to set this project apart is the word dominance. Um, and, uh, and people might be surprised to see that word in a, in a project that is about differentiation, which most people think differentiation is kind of a nice warm and fuzzy thing so you it's so you've got these three d's uh and it sounds like you can have two different kinds of differentiation one that's conducive to dom dominance and one that's conducive to democracy and and that they and that those are kind of polar opposites in terms of forms of differentiation they certainly are different um it's a bit more complicated because the question is there also would be one could say that there are also forms of differentiation that don't really weigh heavily on either side you know that are kind of more neutral i mean technical functional things that are that you don't necessarily directly associate with it would be a bit contrived to say that this has directly to, to do with democracy however it will have to uh, to do with good governing so you could in the end say yes of course it is related to democracy that the differentiation in terms of forms of of of, of uh, knowledge and so on, so um, so I guess in the end you can say that it, it's a kind of you could think about it as a kind of binary to make it very simple, but I think you could see it more as a continuum rather than as two kind of polar or, or two binary options. Um, now on the dominance aspect, as I was hinting, this this is stemming from a a development in in uh, political theory, uh, especially driven by Philip Pettit's work on republicanism. So he is trying to revitalize a tradition of thought from uh, the American founding fathers and all the way back to ancient Rome, actually, um, w which underlined democracy as non-domination. That's sort of the, that at least this is his own take, modern take on, on this ancient tradition. Um, that had to do with with uh, it, it had to do with um, the problem of slave, the status of person. You know, when uh, somebody is a slave and therefore is being dominated. And the interesting thing that Pettit is saying that it doesn't matter whether the owner is benign or not, you're still a slave, and therefore you develop all 
also the psychological aspects of being a slave. So this type of submission, submissiveness and, uh, and bowing and scraping and all these things are associated with this form of dominance. That's the sort of more personalistic notion that Pettit uh, uh, starts out with. And then you can say that society is also structured and in, in, in forms and shapes that have dominance effects because of generating status differences, generating arbitrary forms of, of, of power and so forth. And that these are also structural fact factors. There are also aspects of modern capitalism that can have dominating effects in this sense uh, in terms of generating uh, significant redistributive differences that actually have an impact on people's standing and, and actual real life. So, so that th this is actually a broader panoply of, of elements that can be fitted under this whole um, debate on, on dominance. And there are several strands of, of thinking on this, some with a more Kantian orientation and other with a more actually uh, consequentialist orientation like, like Pettit has. Mm -hmm. So in thinking about, do you take other Republican ideas in thinking about the actual uh, architecture of the European Union? Well, certainly we um, we're interested in 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 developing this, and and actually one of the there are um, especially the one who is closest to Pettit and who has applied this to the European Union is Richard Bellamy in his latest book, uh, and and he's talking about a, a republican intergovernmentalism as a as particular take on this. Um, so that's an interesting idea, um, but he. In, and of course, he also does, does discuss a differentiation under that type of heading. There is there is something to be said for for some of the um, themes that Bellamy is taking up. I don't think I would end up where he ends up. Right. Partly because I I think it is difficult to stabilize uh, and and to ensure a democracy in a a, a system uh, of a more intergovernmental orientation. However, um, I'm also very concerned about a, a overly supranational system. And I think that some of the uh, debate in the EU has confused centralization. Uh, I mean, integration has basically conflated integration with, with centralization. I'm much more interested in federalization. That has an element of consolidating a center, of course. But it is doing so at the same time as it won't, It is attentive to the fact that um, there is shared and self-rule. So it is then about finding a viable balance between autonomous self-governing and shared governing in, in, in Europe. And Bellamy is to some extent also in, in this area, but he is a bit more skeptical of of this standard idea of federalism, but I'm I'm more attentive and su uh, sympathetic to federalism. But I do acknowledge that we are talking about a federalism without a, a kind of a state for formation. I think on that we would agree. Without but, a federal state, yes, w with a kind of, of of with a transfer of sovereignty to the central European level, I think is highly problematic. And this is going to be very difficult to get it to do to do, uh, to be done. And besides, you might also find that. The, the functions and, and competences that can be uh, well undertaken at the European level might not be those that we normally associate with the state. I mean, the European Union itself 
earlier was a, as a civilian power Europe and so on, also had a different orientation to this, that it wanted to pacify international relations and operate towards a more cosmopolitan orientation rather than actually becoming more a Westphalian state. So there is also a spinal reflex inside the EU that is kind of critical of this type of, of centralizing impetus. But I don't think we can avoid a system that has a division of competence and thinks about this across levels. Precisely how is one of the things that we will be examining in this project. Um, Let's get back to dominance for a minute. Can I ask, um, can you give an example, or I have an example and I want to, you to tell me whether this is an example of dominance. The European semester, the system of, uh, it's, it's not coercive per se, but it does involve a lot of surveillance of, uh, and uh, essentially, um, forces uh, parliaments especially parliaments are supposed to be the budgetary uh, powers within member states forces them to to uh, to obey a certain set of rules about how um, about about uh, about their budgets um, is that an is that an example of dominance like even though it's not then it's not exactly coercive or do you have something else in mind it, it, there are elements in the European semester that are problematic, for sure, um, because a system that has is is imposing on that on on member states uh, and so forth without being properly democratically authorized itself at the European level is problematic in that sense. Um, Maybe and, you've got a different example. In yes, mind. you, you um, mentioned the council, for example. Well, one of the th one of the uh, issues that I would um, that I would uh, uh, underline is, for instance, the um, the during the crises when uh, decisions were taken, uh, and and um, okay, and when you had the uh, when when you had an, an, a lot of coordination going on between heads of governments making uh, informal deals and so on, without necessarily subjecting this to democratic scrutiny, so a lot of a lot of these bilateral uh, negotiations and so forth that have struck deals and so on have removed the locus of decision making from the authorized decisions uh, under the heading of the European Parliament and so forth, which is a much more arduous and difficult procedure um, this, than, than in under the negotiated uh, deals uh, uh, in the European Council. Now, I do realize that this is a bit tricky because it also was a crisis. So the so one should be a bit careful on this. Uh, the the it could I mean if insofar as this was then tested later on and proceduralized so that the, the democratic uh, institutions could come back and control it, then and and rein this back and test it and so on. I think then that would be okay. But if this system solidifies as a decision procedure, then then it's highly problematic because then the democratic bodies are not having a full uh, say and on, on these types of things. Another possible instance of dominance would be when states are excluded, when they are affected by decisions, but excluded from either information about them or uh, from participation in the making of the decisions. This will, be a, this will be a more standard notion of dominance. You could also say that um, the fact that the German parliament made decisions with bearings on the situation for citizens in Greece 
what we saw in the crisis and the distributive effects of the Eurozone crisis is a case of dominance because it exceeded its democratic authorized mandate as, as a, a parliament for Germany to actually make rules that had bearing on other states. If those issues that are, are, are relevant for, for Greece should be settled in fora where Greece itself is in, in, in included in this. And the Troika has also decisions against that um, uh, after you had the um, Greek referendum were highly problematic because you had democratically authorized procedures that were basically sidelined by these types of international bodies. So these are these are clearer instances of dominance. Um, on the European semester, I think you can say that some of the effects are highly problematic because they become a straitjacket. The procedures are also not adequate in, in the way they are set, set out. So there is a problem to this. But I guess we also need to think about gradations of, of dominance. So the EU 3D project is one of these mega projects, the Horizon 2020 project. How many partners? We have 10 partners in, across Europe. Uh, we have around 50 researchers affiliated in total with the so project. That's quite impressive. And uh, how long will it go on? It will run for four years. Four years yeah. until? And, uh, beginning of 2023. Okay. Okay, so let's shift gears and uh, uh, talk about the Norway model. Uh, John Eric Fossum has written the book on the Norway model as a as one possible future post-Brexit. Um, uh, the, the full title of the book is uh, Squaring, squaring, the, circle squaring the Circle on Brexit. Uh, could the Norway model work? Could the Norway mo model work? Together with Hans-Petter Graver, who is a, a legal scholar. Now, um, what is the Norway model? And I understand that it's not just uh, membership in the European economic area. There's more to the Norway model than that. What is now um, labeled the Norway model? And you can say that I, I guess this is something that has been developed uh, more as a political label than really a scientific label, because it, it is a, a composite of 120 agreements or so. Uh, where the uh, European Economic uh, Area Agreement is the core of this whole arrangement. But it also includes uh, arrangements, agreements in uh, affiliation with Schengen and also in foreign and security policy. So it, it covers the uh, more or less a whole specter of EU issues, even if there are gaps also in between on this. And of course, we're not inside the euro uh, um, zone or anything like that, of course, not being members. And would you, um, would you define the Norway model as um, sort of associate membership, quasi-membership, partial membership, or yeah. something else? Yeah, well, <laughs> it is formally speaking non-membership, but it is submission and subjection to European rules and norms. Is that so dominance? It's, this is something we have been discussing. Yes. Um, we we edited co-edited Eric Erickson and I co-edited the book in 2015, and uh, we were pretty close to saying that this was a case of um, self-subjected uh, under European hegemony. Um, it depends on on exactly where you pitch the the bounds of dominance, but it has an element of this in it because of the type of subjection, the fact that you ha that we have pr basically prevented ourselves from having a say in the decisions that we are subject to. So it's clear that, that this arrangement is democratically and constitutionally problematic. Now, there are some elements of this arrangement that 
that I think also should be discussed under that type of, of heading because basically what we um, import or incorporate from the European Union is democratically authorized law. It has gone through democratic procedures in the European Union. And I wonder what, what this does, if this complicates the situation or not. Um, because it's obvious that from our perspective, it, we, are, we are subject to laws that we have not uh, actually been participating in making. So democratically speaking, it's highly problematic. Now, can you, do you have the right to, you at least have a formal right to reject uh, you have a, yes, you have a right to to decide that the, this or that provision should not ap apply. This has never been actually exercised because um, uh, Norwegians uh, and the other EEA states are very well. They are, I think, justifiably uh, concerned that if if they started doing this, um, they would lose credibility. And this operates on a trust license, basically, this type of arrangement, so that the. Uh, uh, the EU needs to have some assurance that these uh, laws uh, are followed in Norway too and are incorporated properly. And there is also a body, the ESA surveillance agency, that is uh, overseeing this. And some people have talked about this as more Catholic than the Pope, that it is quite a, quite a careful overseer of, of a lot of these things. So there is a sanctioning mechanism as well. Um, now, so uh, can we turn to Brexit? and? Uh Let's talk about but, whether or not the Norway model would work for, as a as a model for uh, the UK after Brexit. Yes, um, uh, the debate has gone on for a while. Um, my 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 uh, thinking on this um, has been that it is it is a possibility. I mean, I think we even said this in the book. It's a possibility that this model could be adopted for a while as a sort of a temporary measure. I don't think this will work as a long-term permanent measure. Be and, and I think that has to do more with politics than with law and the affiliation. Because one of the things you see also in the EU is law can be more flexible than people think. Uh, and, and there are also quite a lot of uncertainties. And there is some flexibility even in the EA agreement subject to the kind of trust relations we are talking about. But but the political uh, sphere is, I think, the, the interesting one in the sense that the EA agreement is is one where the way it, it's operated in Norway is, is because the uh, political parties and the political forces in Norway have basically put aside the membership issue as a kind of a gag rule, deciding not to take this up and therefore have decided that they want to incorporate EU law and so on so that they are have access to the market because of the economic certainty that that provides. Now what that means is that it depoliticizes de facto the type of, of relationship because it delinks attention to specific issues, policy issues from the broader constitutional democratic situation which I said was problematic. I think most people would agree that this is highly problematic the gradations vary a bit, but uh, but it's definitely very problematic, the relationship. Now, with this depoliticization, it also means, I mean, the EA agreement itself is structured so that you cannot actually take your grievances to the EU level because there is no proper channel of access because the institutions are not tailored to be part of the European conversation, to be part of the European decision-making forums. You don't have access to the parliament or, or representation in the parliament. I mean, I meant representation in the parliament um, 
where you can bring your grievances. So you have to deal with those grievances domestically. And therefore... And on a bilateral basis with the European Union. Under, yes, and you also have to relate to the other members of the EA because it has to be unanimous, the decisions in this, in this committee. Um, so there's limited scope to take grievances to these types of institutions. Now, what we have seen in the UK is that the UK has taken a lot of the grievances and so on to the European Union to try to help, especially pre, uh, uh, Prime Minister May was doing that the whole time, going to the Union to get a better deal and so forth, um, because it was so difficult to get things sorted at home. Well, do we have recourse to that under the EA agreement? We can renegotiate the agreement and so forth, but what type of recourse would otherwise be except from informal negotiations and uh, attempts and so on to, to f- help? And the EU has shown flexibility in this too, but that's at a different level and it's a much lower level of intensity. And it is based on, the, on a system where you have very limited forms of, of contestation in Norway uh, and certainly only to specific issues. And therefore I think that the UK itself will have big problems living under this kind of arrangement, also because the ERC and the UK Parliament are talking about this as a form of vassal state arrangement. Uh, And also, I think the uh, arrangement itself will not carry, bear the burden of of this type of contestation inside of it. And therefore, it could actually undermine the whole arrangement uh, as such. So I don't think that there is actually a Norway model for the UK in the long run. Um, so, but we should just uh, take a moment to clarify. So, the that um, when people talk about the Norway model in the UK as a possible future, Norway is in the single market, uh, with some exceptions, the exception of agriculture and fisheries, correct? But it's outside of the customs union, um, and so for a long time, uh, or a couple of years ago. Everybody was talking about the Norway. There was a time when everybody was talking about the Norway model. Um, and your book uh, had just come out and it was perfect timing. Um, and so people talk about Norway for now. That sounds like uh, what you're suggesting, that, that it could be, it could be um, an antechamber uh, on, that, uh, on its way out of the European Union. Uh, Britain could adopt the Norway model temporarily. That's the Norway for now model. And then there's also the Norway plus model, which is, I believe, single market and the plus being customs union. And so that would actually be a closer relationship than what Norway has. Well, on on the economic side, yes, I agree on this. Uh, The plus and minus here is a bit tricky because it's basically looked, looked upon in relation to the European economic area agreement and not Schengen so I'll get back to that um, as a temporary measure yes it would look like um, the re- arrangement Norway has uh, before the UK actually I mean uh, un- until the UK renegotiates its own status uh, when it has formally uh, left the European Union but before it has uh, as, as, as a trans- transition phase it would be more or less in the same situation as Norway so you're uh, talking about the transition the transition I'm, I'm actually talking about this Having it, uh, then, then it would be analogous because they would be subject to EU laws and rules with sanctioning force without actually having decision-making power. So that's basically Norway's situation. Now, as, as you said, the plus is the customs union. And of course, we are, are, our ec- economy doesn't require uh, 
the same level of access to the customs union as the UK does because of the way in which the UK economy is is configured. Namely, it requires input from many different sources um, for this to function. Supply chain. Supply chain, indeed. And uh, so uh, we export more raw materials and so forth. And, uh, and therefore, they have managed with those issues that are not part of this, they have managed to deal with this. It's paperwork and all this is more arduous, but it's nowhere near the situation that the UK would be in. And, um, the, Nor- and the Norway model by itself, without the customs union, would not solve the problem of the Irish border. No, no. Now, uh, we should also keep in mind that Norway is more integrated on some areas, for instance, in with, by the fact that we are also in, in, um, affiliated with Schengen. That means that we are inside the EU's internal border with responsibility for EU border controls. Of course, that's uh, something that some uh, British people have been surprised about earlier, but that's the reality. And has, that has to do with Nordic Union and the need for Norway to be uh, maintain its close affiliations with the other Nordic states. So that was a bind that Norway had, and the European Union solved this by allowing us to uh, be inside of the Schengen arrangement, even if we are not a member. That also is means that you have a special affiliation arrangement with the EU under the Schengen, which is a kind of a guillotine thing, that's saying that if you oppose anything, then the whole uh, a- a- arrangement falls apart. And there are also interesting uh, twists in this, because the Schengen legislation and so on was established before um, many of the aspects of Schengen were incorporated in EU law and therefore the text of the Schengen agreement is different from what the Schengen counterpart is now in EU law so that's okay. there's also a question now of compatibility uh, between the uh, European uh, provisions and the Norway, uh, the Schengen provisions that we are operating with so and people are concerned about this too because they don't want to have this type of ambiguity they want to make sure that this is a smooth and operating arrangement so that's one aspect that shows that we are more incorporated some el- elements that are more incorporated than the UK another um, another er- uh, point is that you said two areas that were excluded that's fisheries and agriculture now the fact that Norway needs market access especially for fisheries, meant that it had to adopt the uh, um, animal health and the veterinary provisions under the fisheries. And that had a spillover also to agriculture. And that meant that agriculture, the, the provisions now in the field of agriculture are the EU provisions that are now actually being incorporated in the field of agriculture are very, very comprehensive. So 40% now of what is being incorporated in the EA agreement is in the area of agriculture. So it shows that it's very difficult in, in this type of close, uh, closely related um, uh, affiliation to, um, to remove and keep policy areas outside because of spillover and, uh, and uh, the fact that states are closely tied together and that they have mutual, rec- uh, mutual uh, dependence uh, and, and interweaving. So that, that is something I did not realize. So because that is a major issue in Ireland about uh, so-called SPS, um, uh, sanitary and photosanitary rules. Um, and uh, there's a lot of discussion about, about, the, about Northern Ireland staying within the EU's regime. So in that way, it, Northern Ireland would be in an analogous position to Norway. Am I correct in saying that? In adopt, not being part of the common agricultural policy, 
but adopting those rules? If it wants to have full market access, indeed, that would be that would seem to be the case. Uh, and of course, this has to do with a whole uh, debate about non-tariff barriers, you know. And, and of course, these are much more tricky than tariff barriers in the overall situation, because that's where where you can. Uh, that's where you can discriminate and, and, and take people out by developing different standards. So if you have a deviation of standards, then you have a problem with market access. The Post-Brexit Europe podcast is a product of the Bridge Network, which is a Jean Monnet network funded by the European Union's Erasmus Plus program. It is recorded at the DCU Brexit Institute with Catherine Martin as the producer. My name is Ian Cooper. Thank you for listening. Thank you.